Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours as always. Today's guest is Tom Robinson, famous pop star, rock star, uh, activist from the Tom Robinson band, 2468 Motorway, War Baby, most notably Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay. He's had a very successful career, primarily in a band, but also um, for quite a while now on radio. And um, he's a very highly regarded songwriter by me and by many other people as well. So here he is, Tom Robinson. So tell us about growing up in Cambridge. Uh, very straight upbringing, you know, 1950, that was the post-war generation. Um, everything was in black and white, <laughs> the movies, uh, didn't, have a, didn't have a TV for ages. Um, so, you know, rationing didn't even finish till 1956. So we had National Health, Orange Juice, all the rest of it. So we didn't know any other world, so that was our world. But then my brother comes home with uh, Rock Around the Clock on the 78 and puts it on the family gramophone. And, like, father is outraged and, uh, you know, the rest of us well, go... Describe to me uh, your, your father's outrage. That sounds interesting. Well, my father was uh, very fond of music, but only up to about 1870. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Brahms was all getting a bit too much for him. Uh, so very much classical Bach. Uh, right. The romantics stuff. and uh, and and he didn't didn't care for the romantics, but the no. classicists, the classicists he was very uh, very up with. He made us all have piano lessons from the age of five, and at the age of twelve he allowed me to give up because I couldn't play any better than when I was five because I never practiced. Uh, <laughs> my heart wasn't in it, but uh, it's doing me in good stead that I knew my way around a piano when I come to later on sort of thrash out chords and stuff. I sang in the local church choir uh, just because that was a thing you could do at school. Other boys said, oh, you should join the choir. It's really good. You get 12 and sixpence a month. Um, actually, I think it was 12 and sixpence every three months. But choir yeah. pay, it was money, though. And uh, in those days, um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of it about. That's true. And uh, so when did you, I mean, presumably you learned guitar during your teen years, early teen years. When, when did that start? It started basically to annoy my dad because, uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> you I've know. seen a theme developing here. Uh, no, he really hated pop music. And uh, also my big brother had a Spanish guitar and he was my role model. He was like six years older than me. I was always trying to play catch-up. And never did, because by the time he got on, I got onto a thing that he was doing, he wasn't doing it anymore. Right. So, you know, he had dinky toys. I didn't have any dinky toys. When he gave them all to me one birthday, he didn't want dinky toys anymore, and I got them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once once um, he got fed up with riding a bike, I got his old bike. So I was suddenly mobile on a bike, but he bought a car. And it, right, right. It, it so you were a hand-me-down kid. I was a hand-me-down kid, but also a catch-up kid. And uh, my brother used to kind of entertain 
at family gatherings and parties with an acoustic guitar, singing comic songs and stuff. And I thought, this is a way to instant popularity to learn that. Uh, so initially I learned it as a way to show off. Um, but then um, there started yeah. to be bands at school, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, fifth and sixth formers started playing shadow songs and stuff on homemade guitars that they'd built in the woodwork shop. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it was um, amazing. Again, catch up, you know, I wanted to be like that. So um, I eventually formed a band of my own. I mean, it's interesting the so many uh in, i always start off by asking people about their early life because a lot of people don't really ask about early life of people who are famous and uh, i'm fascinated with family dynamics and and how much there's that um that impetus to gain attention in a larger family for for people who are younger i mean i'm the youngest of four um uh, i was never really that entertaining i was very shy but um I can understand that mechanism within families where you're trying to get the attention. It all seems to be about getting the attention of your parents a lot of it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it it did eventually come, but many, you know, in my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> I made my peace with my dad in my 30s. Did you? Oh. I did, yeah. I, I had this revelation and I suddenly went, so him having to apologise to me, it's actually, I owe him a really fucking big apology for having messed him about so much uh, as a kid and caused him so much grief and trouble. And, uh, yeah, I, I wrote to him and said, look, Dad, I'm really sorry for all the shit I put you through. And I really love you, you know, and I want you to know that I go and put flowers on Mother's grave from time to time and, you know, and... Um, I love you. And he wrote back the letter I never thought I'd ever get from my dad because he was very strict and stern and had his ideas about his children getting on in the world. He didn't want us to be wastrels yeah. um, because he had pulled himself up by his bootstraps coming out of the army with nothing. Uh, and he'd done a solicitor's course for seven years and he'd kind of trained and managed to get himself a middle-class job and then uh, got into management and stuff. So he was keen for the, like, the competitiveness of not starving. <laughs> you know? I can dig that. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit younger than you, not much younger. I was born in 56. So uh, I wasn't aware it was kind of a post-war vibe. To me, the, I, st I still felt when I was at school that the Second World War was kind of history. But actually, yeah. looking back on it now, it was only just over when I got born. Yeah, uh, true. Um, and so, uh, uh, and growing up in a more of a working class environment, but I just found it all very, um, there was never that pressure put on me. Right. Because my dad just works in the steelworks all his life, and his dream, as he told me later in life, was to be an office worker. <laughs> <laughs> he was a smart guy. Yeah, you know, yeah. Exams. But he used his brain. In the, in the 20s. Uh, when he started, so that, that was it. But also, the other thing I wanted to mention to you is we grew up in the 70s, 60s, 70s. The, I uh, I was told it we it was a bad time for everybody in the 70s, but in reality, in Sheffield, but in reality, because of the Thatcher thing, in reality, we had pretty much full employment. I mean, any, anybody who wanted a full-time job, it might have been the job you wanted, but you could get a full-time job. And now we're not in that world anymore, are we? Not remotely, no. And um, 
I think the 70s was the first time people started to complain about unemployment because up until that point there hadn't been much. Yeah. And it was particularly youth unemployment was the big bugbear in the 70s. It was teenagers growing up and finding that they couldn't get jobs. But I think people in their 20s, 30s, 40s could still go out and get pretty much any job they wanted. Yeah, it's true. Um, Tell me about, I mean, I am a socialist, unashamed, as you know, um still am in fact i'm getting more left-wing as i get older i think well you have to don't yeah um tell me about because obviously uh you grew up in a relatively middle class environment tell me about your you know how your uh politics developed from a young person my dad was always vehemently anti-tory uh, as we were growing oh, brilliant. up he used to in in the wartime and early in the 50s, he used to write as an anonymous col- columnist for Tribune. Wow. Um, so he was definitely against privilege and, you know, the one law for the rich and the other for the poor. And as soon as he qualified as a solicitor, he went to work in a private solicitor's practice. And within a year, it had turned his stomach so much that he left the private practice and went to work for the Treasury of all people, he became a solicitor at the at the Treasury because the job there was about the law and the application of the law, even-handedly. And they were like drafting um, motorway services, motorway service stations for the M1, and planning permission for you know that kind of stuff, building bridges. And so that was not what he'd had in private practice, which is being an enforcer for the bourgeoisie uh, so that, you know, helping farmers evict tenants off their lands, helping landlords screw more rent out of their, um, you know, clients. I think we need to bring the word bourgeoisie back into common usage. It's difficult, difficult though, because I am so fucking bourgeois. (laughs) You know, I can't help it, you know, I've grown up with bourgeois tastes. I I like good food, I like living comfortably. Yeah, um, of course. Is that bourgeois? Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, I think Jacques Brel would have called us that. I've I've done a translation of Jacques Brel's song "Les Bourgeois" uh, really? in, into English. I ch- changed it into "Yuppie Scum," um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's basically about these kids sitting outside <laughs> the pub, taking the piss out of the bourgeoisie as they go go off to have their fat dinners at the uh, local restaurant them sitting outside the local boozer and uh, shouting um, yuppie scum, smug and dumb, the older they are, the thicker they get. Uh, and of course, but then the third the third verse ends up, you know, 20 years later, they've qualified, they've got jobs as lawyers, and they're just coming out of the restaurant opposite and <laughs> complaining to the police about these yobs over the road outside the pub shouting at them, calling them yuppie scum. Oh. So... I see. It, so it's it goes, full circle, right? Yeah, it goes. It goes full circle. So it's a brilliant song, and uh, it, it kind of puts its uh, finger yeah. on the, the people who shout loudest about the bourgeois. Uh, I saw often. something um, which kind of flips that on its head a little bit. I went to visit my son who lives in Manchester, and we were walking through town. And Friday and Saturday night is like all hen and stag parties. Everybody's off their tits, right? right. So. Uh, young people <clears throat> and um it was only like seven in the evening and they were already solid gone most of them and i saw this uh, group of young girls <clears throat> walking down the street and they spotted a guy 
who was clearly worse for wear, slumped in a doorway about 10 yards away. And they started taking the piss out of him. And I'm going, you know, there's something very wrong in this country where this is regarded as a funny thing to do. Mm. I don't remember so much anything like that when I was growing up uh, in Sheffield anyway. And um, it's become a harder country now, isn't it, this country? I mean, attitude-wise. A lot of it has, but... uh... It depends which bit of the country you're in because it's so fragmented. Uh, and there's an opening up divide between, you know, I don't know, you don't have to define it. it ma- that divide manifests itself in Brexit, pro-Brexit, vaccine, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. Um, my kid brother is absolutely a, a full-on uh, truther, so nothing. Yeah, yeah, so nothing that is said in the newspapers or by the BBC or by politicians is true, and there is an alternative explanation which is much more sinister to everything, and that that divide is really what's coming. I shouldn't down. laugh, but I know so many people. Like that. It's, it's a, yeah, yeah, and that's what's com- that's that's what's coming down the line, and I think it depends which side of that divide you find yourself on, whether it's a harder or a more compassionate country. I think the bits of it that I managed to inhabit most of the time um, are so much more gentle, so much more compassionate and considerate than in the 70s. Um, Just the everyday racism, sexism, homophobia that we all took for granted. It was baked into the society, you know. And, And I look back with horror at some of the jokes I shared and the things I thought were funny back then, and I realised, you know, it's just total insensitivity. Having grown up in an all-white society in the 50s, you know, we didn't see anything wrong back then about being given a book called Little Black Sambo and mm. his adventures with the tigers. And even though Little Black Sambo was the the hero and he wins over the tigers and there was nothing bad about his blackness, it was, you know... Well, and, and collecting gollywogs from Robertson Jam. Exactly, all that stuff. And so <laughs> I think you think today that there is... It's still horrible, it's still divided. There is still widespread racism, widespread... Um, Widespread misogyny, really, you know, when female politicians getting pilloried on mm. on Twitter for no reason other than that they're a woman. And so that is still there. But I think it was always there back then. Oh, it was. It's, I mean, the, what I liken it to now is, you know, the, I think one of the things about the, uh, the internet is that um, Everything is nothing's allowed to be under the radar anymore. I mean, it's all exposed if you want it to be, and so it's like lifting a rock, really. And you see all the creepy crawlies underneath, but those creepy crawlies have always been there. Yeah, it didn't only come into existence because you lifted the rock. No, (laughs) well, my exposure really to to coming to a more radical view of society came through moving to London in the seventies. And coming out as gay, mm. and uh, when did it? What year was that? Seventy-three. Wow. I, I just decided I've moved to this big city. I don't know anybody. I may as well live openly. 
and uh, right. and then the discovery that there was a community around that that there was gay news published every fortnight amazing and, you know campaigning organizations you could join and a lot of the theology of particularly the gay liberation front which you know started out being sounding like a joke oh there's women's liberation now they're trying to get on the ball with gay yeah, liberation yeah. how pathetic but once you actually got into it um their theology uh, and the stuff that Peter Tatchell and I both grew up on is the idea that freedom is indivisible. You either live in a free and a fair society or you don't. And you can't ask for freedom for gays if women are a sub subset of oh, humanity. Exactly. You know, or if people with different coloured skins shouldn't have the same opportunities. So it's joining Rock Against Racism as well as joining the Gay Liberation Front was kind of vital to the development of, of an understanding of the way things work. And when the police started beating up on the gays in Earl's Court at the same time as the sus laws were being uh, impl uh, implemented in uh, Notting Hill and Brixton, you suddenly realise, yes, we have common cause and you've got to, you've got to be on the right side of it. I think that the... Um... There's a very there's a special set of uh, circumstances for the whole gay liberation thing, which is, I think everybody who was intelligent and interested in in current affairs as we were growing up uh, and read a little bit more about the history of of uh, of, of um, the gay cause realized that. Um, there were so many people, not just in entertainment, but in all strata of society that were gay and were frightened to come out. Yeah. And uh, uh, obviously judges, lawyers, you know, police. Um, sounds like a Masonic, doesn't it? It's actually <laughs> thinking about it. Um, but there's an awful lot of, there was an awful lot of that. And it, the, the problem was that it was threatening to expose their hypocrisy. Yeah. And... That was not yeah. So I don't think the gay liberation thing. Were, uh, I think the gay liberation thing was necessary and it was fantastic, and it was it, it enabled a whole new generation of of young people to come out if they wanted to. But it there was it was always going to be resisted massively by the by by the powers that be because it exposed their hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, I think a result of that hypocrisy was that growing up uh, as a queer teenager, you know, I didn't find out I was properly bisexual until my 30s, but, you know, when the big issue is the fact that you're a homo and that's what your friends are all making jokes about at school and it's the, it's the one outcast category you can be in and you find yourself in it, um, then that... Kind of dominates your viewpoint, and you you don't kind of realise the way thing. And the reason why you're so isolated, like a cuckoo born into an alien nest, you know, <laughs> you grow up with siblings around you that don't have aren't the same species as you, and you have to find your own family outside that nest. And when there are no open role models, yes. you grow up in the sixties, and nobody is saying that they're gay. You know, those in the know knew, but we had no way of looking to somebody who could tell you, you can have a happy life. You're okay. 
Yeah. And, and that was the difference with the 70s, that, that with David Bowie onwards through Mark Harmon, Bronsky B, you know, and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Fantastic that this role model idea was there, that they were saying, yeah, we are, we're okay, you can be too. I think that was marvellous. And yeah, um, vital, isn't it? I mean, and, and also, so tell us about the day you decided to come out. Was there? Was it that, or was it like a gradual thing, or no? So a revelation? What was it? It was pretty much instantaneous. As soon as I moved to London, and was living in uh, digs in Clapham, and uh, had my own life under my own control, and then looked in the back of Time Out and found that there was such a thing as a gay pub. And then I went to one and bought a copy of Gay News that a bloke was selling out of a sack on his back around <laughs> the pub. And you'd read in there, you suddenly find this whole world opens up. And then I go to a gay ball, like a, a dance being yeah. organ organised by the local Gay Liberation Front. And it's just like all the dances you went to, village dances you went to at school, you know, <laughs> Self-organised, you know, just people in their shabby best clothes, all sitting around the edge of the dance floor, cobbled together record players and everything, and a community feel to it. And then the music starts, and get this, the boys dance with the boys, and the <laughs> girls dance with the girls. And I can't tell you how liberating and oh, amazing that felt, you know. And I suddenly got it. Dancing had been something like rugby, one of those things that you have to that you have to do at school and you have to do it to fit in. <laughs> but it but it's horrible and you don't see the point of it. And then <laughs> some, and then when you're dancing with somebody you fancy, oh, you go, oh wow. my god, I get it now. It's courtship. <laughs> it's a courtship ritual. Yes, of course it is. <laughs> so that was marvelous coming to the London phone that and then at that same dance there were badges you could buy on the way out. Uh, and they had, they had some that said Gay Liberation Front, out big and bold. And then there was another one that was a little bit more timid, which just had a fist and a butterfly, and it just said, come out. So I thought, I bought both of those. And to work the next day, I wore my come out badge as I went into work. And wow. immediate, immediately, one of the secretaries in the uh, typing pool Bounced up to me, and said, "Oh, I like your badge. What's that badge? What, what? What? What is it? What is it?" And and I said, and I completely copped out. I said, "Oh, it's 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 just one of those things you either know or you don't know." And oh. didn't say anything. And then I I didn't wear it into work the next day. Oh. And she came up to me the next day. She said, "You know that badge you were wearing yesterday." It was a bit like this one, wasn't it? And opened her purse, which said Gay Liberation Front on the badge in her purse. And just letting me know Still, I wasn't alone. She hiding her light under a bushel then. Yeah, but, you know, back, back on went the badge at that point. Wait. You realise, of course, wearing a badge on a crowded tube train makes a difference to those who spot it, recognise it, and realise they're not alone. So then I discovered you could buy gay news on the newsstand at the tube station, as well as in the pubs. So first day I find this, I buy my gay news, get onto a crowded tube train to go to work, and I read it openly, yes. standing up in the carriage, 
daring anybody to try. And immediately there's this guy behind me. I, in my peripheral vision, I can see he's a city gent. And he's got the bowler hat and the umbrella and the briefcase and the pinstripe suit. And I, I couldn't see whether he'd got a moustache, but you'd imagine that he would. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes clear this bloke is going to say something. He's gone. And just before my stop, he clears his throat and he finally says, You know, the fortnights just seem to fly by, don't they? <laughs> you know, and oh. at that moment, yes, I came out. <laughs> Why not live openly? Well, this is great. Yeah, but the point, the point, Tom, is that it takes courage to do that uh, because there is always the, you know, the outside possibility that you could be accused of uh, drawing attention to yourself and therefore become a target for the wrong kind of people. Did that ever happen to you? Luckily, um, I was. I had a very lucky twenties that I didn't get that. I mean, I got death threats and stuff once I was um, uh, having my 15 minutes of fame with the, Tom, <laughs> with the Tom Robinson band. But my management never sent, never passed them on to me. I no. never heard I never heard about them. I said, look, look I don't, don't want to know. What, what does it benefit me to find out? Um, so oblivious to all that. But when I went on the Rock Against Racism Carnival March, I went on the march from Trafalgar Square to Victoria Park, so that I was part of it with everybody else. And uh, my management did thoughtfully provide me with two fucking huge bodyguards who, yeah. ambled, who ambled along beside me just in case, because we were going through National Front areas deliberately, of right. course. Yeah. Right. But... Um, were, were they wearing hot pants? <laughs> they should have been, shouldn't they? Now you know, like Andy Bell's uh, shiny ones. You know, oh God! Well, this this is rock against racism rather than gay liberation. All right, fair enough. But um, yeah, well, it it Ron, Ron and Mick, I'll never forget them because they were just big ordinary geezers, and uh, well, one was big and one was little. And I said, "Well, what what would you do if somebody came over and started making a scene?" So, well, we'd talk to them, wouldn't we? You know, ninety percent of it is verbal. You just say, look, what's the point? You you know, I have to hit you and then you get your mates and come back and then I have to get my mates and come back and hit you. Look, where's he going to go? Why don't he go off and have a drink? You know, it, was, it was really reassuring. They said the most of the work they did never, ever got physical. Yeah. It was always figuring the psychology of the situation and keeping the customer safe. But as it was, nothing happened on the march. It was a joyful thing. And by the time we were arriving at Victoria Park, it was still leaving Trafalgar Square. Really? We had no idea those kinds of numbers were going to come. Wow. And so the PA was uh, specified for uh, 20,000 people. We thought if we were really lucky, we might get 10. So if we specify up to 20, then it'll be fine. 80,000 showed up. The sound, the sound was terrible. I mean, the, the, <laughs> faders, the faders were all pushed up to the edge of the desk. Uh, and, you know, the speakers were jumping out. Cones were jumping out the fronts of the speakers. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, God, those was, sounded terrible it, in those days, didn't they? But um, it, it was being—it was the being there that was that yeah. was part of it. I think that was the proudest moment, really. I think playing to that many people for that greater cause, and the recent film about it, uh, White Riot, 
yeah. by Rubika Shah really captures it for the first time properly and documents how it grew up and the impact that it had on people's lives. You know, there's an interview with an Asian woman who was like a 16-year-old whose mother forbade her to go go to it, but she went anyway. And, and just finding herself in this massive multicultural throng of people. Fantastic. You know, and going home afterwards, it, it was amazing, um, liberating for them. But at the same time, we were still quite blinded to our own privileges, I think, us white musicians who were taking part in that. Uh, I talked about it years later with um, uh, Dennis Bovell. I talked about it, I'll give you an edit point, talked about it years later with Dennis Bovell from Matumbi, and he said, yeah, it was great, you know, we, we got together like brothers on the stage and we sang together and performed on the same stage at those Rock Against Racing gigs, but your journey home afterwards and my journey home afterwards were still very different, you know. Yeah. They were still going to, going to be stopped by the police. They're still in danger. And, um, you, you know, check your privileges is, yeah, one of the, is, is, is one of the great things that we've learned in the last 10 years, you know, and overdue. So, I mean, it's very interesting. My daughter, who's 27 now, um, for the last year has been going out with um a fantastic uh musician called lash walker he's black he's got dreadlocks and you know he wears then keeps the dreadlocks under his hat a lot of the time charming great guy wouldn't say boo to a goose you know gets stopped all the time yeah. i mean I've, i i'm just about starting to see the reality of it now yeah. he drives a nice car so of course the police pull him over all the time because why are you in a nice car yeah yeah i mean it's the met by the way but uh let's say no more about that um what do you anyway i just thought i'd mention that what uh, what's the tell tell me about your view on on, on the whole pride movement now and lgbtq plus and everything i mean it's it's an amazingly powerful thing for people now and i think my view on it is that it is it, enabled it's not perfect but it's enabled people to identify uh as whatever they want but i'm interested in your view on all this yeah i mean if you had put a gun to my head back in the late 70s and said like out of the various movements you support racial equality, gender equality, and gay equality, which of the two, which of the three is going to have triumphed in 2023? I would, gay equality would have been the last on the list. That's interesting, isn't it? And, you know, whereas we still have to have Me Too, we still have to have Black Lives Matter, and more than ever, and yet we have kind of gay MPs and celebrities and people just talking about their husbands or their wives on the radio, talking about their same-sex same partners. It's quite unexpected for mm. me from back then to find this unimaginable world. Because even in the late 80s, we had the, this tirade of filth from Fleet Street, uh, of pure hatred 
against against queer people and um the aids crisis fueled it and it didn't really turn until freddie mercury's death i think interesting uh, uh, about 92 about 92 freddie mercury was so well loved mm. by so many people that i think the tabloids didn't feel they could vilify him in the same way and also the movie philadelphia came out it was yeah. it was a kind of just a cultural turning of the tide around that time that people suddenly went hold on these are people and it still took years, maybe a decade, before finally we got equality under the law for an age of consent. Mm. Marriage came much later. But that came through a Labour government. And the reason that came through a Labour government was documented in the movie Pride, that fantastic yeah. movie about the lesbians and gays support the minors which at the time just looked like the most ridiculously esoteric, politically airy-fairy thing you could do to find these LGBT activists going around the gay pubs of London with collecting buckets saying, uh, can you give some money for the miners? And the response was always like, well, what have the miners ever done for us? Do you think they give a toss about us? What, what does it matter? And, and people like Mark Ashton were going... Well, but it's the right thing to do. <laughs> Remember that one. You know, this is this is actually right and fair. These people are being fucked over. Yeah, you know, exactly. Same as we've been fucked over all these oh, years. Yeah. Let's give them some money. And once they built their bridges with that mining community in Wales, you know, and that's that idea of being supported by the gays was just. Amazing! The movie really kept really captures it, and um, I can't remember who the woman was who's one of the main movers of that movement. She became an MP for Swansea. Um, you'll have to look up her name, yeah. but uh, I remember at Pride in '85, uh, after that whole thing had gone through and the miners had been defeated by Thatcher, they showed up in force. At Pride in London, and led. That's the amazing, isn't it? They led the parade. That's so their, beautiful. With their brass bands. <laughs> I know it's, it's beautiful, man. I mean, it makes me tear up to be honest, thinking about it. And then it's solidarity, this... mate. That's what we all need now to get these motherfuckers out. Yeah. So. This woman came up on the stage. I was standing by in the wings, ready to go and sing Glad to Be Gay, like I did every year, yeah. <laughs> with my acoustic guitar. Routine, routine. And then just before me, she goes on and she says, I just wanted to thank all the lesbians and gays for your support, wow. for us minors, how much we appreciate it. And if any child of mine was to say, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian, I'll understand. Wow. And, you know, That's what a change. So it was amazing. It's just amazing. So that's why you have to fight for a free and fair society, yeah, not divided up into just the gay struggle, just the minor struggle, just the women's struggle, just the black struggle. You know, it's we've got to 
hang together. Absolutely. And I do uh, think I do think Tom that in the kind of rinse through of the different uh, activist groups and everything that I fear that the uh, the women's struggle is the one that's struggling most. Yeah. Um, I, I I do I I I feel that it's kind of lost focus a little bit and and women are slowly unfortunately incrementally receding back into their traditional roles and it really really concerns me because we are all much stronger if we allow women to 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 be as powerful as they can be i think um this is my yeah. view well you still look at parliamentary committees you still look at panel shows on tv it's still boys clubs even now it know. is there's token women there are more and more women creeping in but yeah. it's still it's still boys clubs and a lot of them have to be boys to get in if you know what i mean yeah yeah <laughs> so i kind of wish you know there was some badge that you could wear or some item of clothing well even that would get abused but I hate it when I'm walking down a dark street late at night and there's a lone woman on the street and yeah. she crosses the road to avoid me because here comes a man and it could be trouble. Yeah. You know, how how do you even begin to say? Well. Because if you, even if you say, hello, good evening, that could be the start of trouble rather than the end of trouble. I, I agree. And, 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 and similarly, you know, when when you see somebody... Uh, a person of colour who's kind of looking kind of furtive and defeated and, you know, look like, looks like they've had a hard time that morning already, uh, keeping their eyes to the pavement. You know, it's very do, interesting. Do, do, yeah. How do you say, you know, I'm on your side, immigrants welcome here, you know? And all, yeah, all, I know, that, I know, yeah. That, 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 that's another discussion as well. But the um, during the Black Lives Matter uprising after floyd um i did a an artwork which was on um a, sa a sound an immersive sound piece which was outdoors on uh on westbourne grove and uh it was based around the curtis mayfield song to be invisible yeah uh, do you know that song yeah oh, what a song that is and the lyrics are incredible and I, I was amazed how few people had even heard that song. And but the idea that it's easier to be invisible than to cause any trouble, or, or, yeah. or uh, and that that is like a a, a a corrosion in your soul, isn't it? Mm. It's like it saps your confidence. It's like I just and you see, I mean, living in London, you see it everywhere. Just people averting their eyes on the tube, walking yeah. down the street on buses, people of colour, or just not wanting to cause any trouble, not wanting to draw attention to themselves, mm. and that breaks my heart. You know, because I don't, I don't really see colour. I, I never have done uh, in that sense, but um, a lot of people do, unfortunately. You know, we've not even talked about music yet. <laughs> we haven't. I tell you what, I'm, you're a person I'm very keen to talk to about music, actually, because I think that you came along at a cusp point mm. uh, 
in music that was really vital that no the people don't generally talk about around 
says, no, can't find the key, didn't know when to come in. <laughs> Bravo. Touche. So, yeah, that's, there you uh, go. That, that's funny. I do think there's a couple of things here. One is the whole Japanese thing is very, um, is a point well made. Um, I think it, not only did it liberate people to record this stuff uh, with the things like the Porter Studio, but it meant that people felt free to make mistakes without having to cost a fortune in a studio. Yeah. So even if you were a solo, uh, you know, singer-songwriter, it was not going to cost you anything to experiment. So I think experimentation flourished. Yes. And it's not just people often go, well, it's just cheap synthesizers. Yes, that was one contributing factor. But the truth of the matter is, were it not for people like Eno who came along and and uh, was in the press going, rock and roll is dead, which is clearly wrong, but he, he said that as a provocation. All you need now is a is a multi-track, to, you know, is a two-track uh, Revox or whatever it is. Revox, posh bastard, eh? Uh, <laughs> very expensive. But anyway, a two-track tape recorded with bouncing capability from track to track, a microphone and a synthesizer. And this was in 75, and that changed my life, I think, that article. I thought, yeah. oh, I can do this. Yeah. Because yeah. before that, I'd been going to Sheffield City Hall, seeing, you know, Keith Emerson with a stack of synthesizers 14 feet high. Yeah. And, and uh, beating up a B3 every night. I'm going, how did they have the money to do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and and the other thing uh, as well is um, we need to look at the way that uh, record companies had come in suddenly come into a lot of money, uh, particularly Virgin. Actually, we signed to Virgin, and and they got all that money from from uh, uh, tubular bells, which they had to get rid of, or else they're going to pay tax on. So they signed. All of a sudden, there was this huge explosion of bands getting signed up. With no real expect, they they were buying them up, uh, like and if two in two in ten did okay, yeah, they could justify that economic shit on the wall theory. Yeah, really. Throwing throw off shit at the wall, some of it will stick. Now, this talking of which, I have to take you a have quick to break. Have shit on the wall. I'll be right back. All right. <laughs> oh dear, that's funny. It's the terrible combination of needing to get to the loo fast and having to use crutches to do it. I just suggested to my um, engineer stroke editor while you were away that we might want to put uh, some lift music on <laughs> during that. Like a uh, girl from Ipanema or something like that. That'd be quite good. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's just... Um, I, I'm, uh, I've got to go soon, so okay. let's zip through some uh, some some important stuff. Um, we all know about your hits, so I'm, I'm people go and research your extremely successful series of hits that you had, and and uh, I mean the reason we talked so much about your activism and about you know the various things that you're passionate about is because I think that's more more interesting actually. Um, and uh, now, of course, you're a big star on the radio. And uh, it says on your Wikipedia page, I love this, it says, 
that you have been on all the different, uh, you've pretty much appeared on every single major uh, station on the BBC. Well, Keithing is actually hosting shows on on yeah. the wall. I don't um, mean appeared, I meant hosting. Yeah. yeah, and that that is a point of pride. I was, you know, able to find interesting stuff. That's great. In, in all of them, yeah. So uh, I very much enjoyed broadcasting and uh, got a chance to do it full-time finally in 2002 uh, with the birth of Six Music, uh, quite accidentally, because uh, one of my old producers from Radio 4, I used to have a series on Radio 4 called The Locker Room about men and masculinity. It ran for six series uh, in the early 90s. And one of my old producers said, can you... Um, do us a favour and come over and uh, record some links for us. Uh, all we need is that was, this is, because uh, we're trying out an idea for a new radio station. We're trying some different playlists. So uh, they went to this kind of shabby little room on the outskirts of the BBC and uh, this uh, experimental team putting together Network Y, as it was called at the time. Oh. And so they were trying, you know, an hour of music put together from their music team, seeing how these kinds of songs would fit together as opposed to these kinds of songs. And they just needed a, a voice to come in and go, that was that it, so that they could hear it as a radio program. So I went in and did that as a favor a couple of times and uh, gradually became part of the Network Y kind of uh, <laughs> development team. Um, I think completely unpaid. It was just sort of like, let's do this, it's fun. And then one day, uh, the head of Radio Two came in and said, uh, "We've got we've got the green light. The station's going to go ahead. We don't know what to call it yet, but uh, we're going to we're going to go on air." And then I got called into the office to say um, uh, to ask me if if I would be a presenter, and uh, would you like to have your own show uh, four nights a week? Uh, and uh, I went, well, yeah, yes, but, yeah, that's great. But to be honest, I don't think I could afford it because I have to go out and gig yeah. to put food on the table. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of my time is spent on the road yeah. these days. And uh, she just said to me, well, how much do you make a year from doing that? And I added it all up and told her the figure. She said, well, we'll pay you that. Yeah. And the big difference, of course, was that that's what I earned on the road, but then I had to pay the petrol and the roadie and the, the equipment and everything and the hotels. So suddenly that was my income. Uh, and I knew where the next crust was coming from. And I could sleep in my own bed every night and watch yeah. my kids grow up. Yes. So, so that was a, a great gift from the gods. And... You know, over the years, obviously, as a new music station, Six Music is bound to be bringing in new talent as well. And so uh, I've kind of been shuffled off into the into the kind of further reaches. And my last real outpost, apart from a request show on Sunday afternoons, which I don't get to choose any of the music for, is the BBC introducing mixtape. I love and, that, by the way. Oh, thank you. I I put, a, I put a lot of love and time into that. It, I have to listen to at least 200 songs every week, and you can only put a tenth of them in the shows. shows. In the show. So um, it does mean everything in there is of a certain quality, 
and I have a love for it. And what's nice about doing that particular show, even though it's just a podcast that goes out at like four in the morning, is that you know every single record you play will make a difference to the artist that you're playing. Whereas if you're on a daytime show playing the stuff off the playlist, one more play of the latest you know, chart hit is not going to make much difference to the artist. But with this, it's just marvellous that you're able to actually help. And so now I'm going out doing a one-man show in November, uh, doing 20 dates around the UK. Right. Uh, just me and my wife, uh, she drives the car, chuck the equipment in the back, <clears throat> mix myself on stage with a Bose PA, uh, very low overheads, and... I'm inviting a local BBC introducing artist oh, from, yeah. each of, from each of the towns, somebody that I've played on the radio, somebody whose music I love. I and, love that idea. And so they're coming and doing 20 minutes at the beginning of the evening to, uh, you know, it just brings the two sides of what I do together. That's so really good. Really That's, looking forward to that. Yeah, my friend... Um, uh, John McClure from Reverend and the Makers. He does something similar. He 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 has I think two or three different brand new acts that uh, that support him on his personal shows everywhere and Reverend and the Makers shows. He's very passionate about that stuff. We have something in common, by the way. We're both um, Basker or Rivers Academy Gold Badge. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mention that. Um, so you're you're uh, heavily involved with Amnesty International as well, and obviously originally Rock Against Racism and Outrage. Um, so are, are you still involved with Amnesty now? Are you? Are you? I just pay my subs every month, you know. Right. I just keep them financed, but I I, I don't go. Right. I think it's. I think if you if you've got a level of fame. To spread around, then that can help sprinkle some fairy dust on events. But <clears throat> I have no illusions about the durability of that fame. <laughs> so the so the first secret policeman's ball, yeah. uh, I I got to sing at that in 1969. You know, uh, I bought the DVD of that. I think, and not not yeah. out then. It but was, they did release it eventually. I think. Yeah, right? it was it was it was great. So you know, I got to sing. Glad to be gay, which is particularly poignant there. Uh, I sang it particularly angrily because Amnesty wouldn't support gay prisons of conscience. <clears throat> it didn't count as grounds for Amnesty support. Um, they said, no, it's got to be political prisons of conscience. Gay is a lifestyle. And uh, so I sang that knowing who the audience was. <clears throat> so that was a privilege to do that. But then by two years later, then they did Secret Policeman's Other Ball. Yeah. Uh, I got it I got it invited along, and that was just to sing backing vocals behind Sting on <laughs> I Shall Be Released. You know? uh, so, so it was very much, and fair, fair play to them, <clears throat> Amnesty played the fame game. They used the biggest names they had available. When they had nothing bigger available than me, they used me. And when they had other fish to fry... There you go. That rings a bell. Okay. That's all right. Yeah, that's fine. 
first of all, I want to encourage the podcast listeners to go go and see Tom perform because I'm sure it'd be fantastic. I've always been an enormous fan of your songwriting, by the way. I meant to say that as a start to blow smoke up your ass. Oh, God. That so, wouldn't have been wise in the present circumstances. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cue, cue more more lift music. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, we come to the uh, fun bit at the end, which is surprisingly revealing normally, which is um, I ask you some stupid kind of smashes type questions. So Oof. what's your favourite film? Pulp Fiction. Is it? Yeah. I would never have guessed that. Is cartoon, it? cartoon violence, but so funny. So, so funny. So transgressive. I it mean, really is on every level, yeah. Yeah, my wife had to drag me to it, and uh, <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah. A TV show, past, present, box set. Um, ready, steady, go. It was back in the... T- People forget now that we have Spotify how inaccessible music was back then yeah there were so few places in the 60s where you could actually hear the important music of the day there was top of the pops which was just pop singles mine too on ready steady go you could hear people actually playing and they'd play two or three album tracks so ready steady go that uh, was the lifeline before i suppose the tube was like a bit of a version of that it was, but it was, you know, more than 10 years later. Yeah, so, true. true. Um, book? Book, um, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, there's, a, there's a... Yeah. Against the Day, I think, is my favourite Pynchon book. And oh. it's so dense that you can... Can read it through and then start at the beginning again yeah. because you've forgotten it all. But I, to to be full disclosure, I get my books on audiobook these days. I do. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't read books anymore. I sometimes buy the book of the audiobook because I want to be able to refer back and forth. But basically, it means you can consume books while you're doing the washing up, while you're commuting. Exactly. <clears throat> you can do something else at the same time as reading. And also, I genuinely think that um, autobiographies as audiobooks oh. lend an entirely different dimension to to the whole thing. If read by the author, of course. Um, have you have you done your autobiography? No, I'm trying to get around to it at the moment. Because I released mine last year. I did it during lockdown, which is a sensible thing to do. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the process. I'm not really a writer, but I enjoyed it. Uh, however, uh, reading the audiobook was like having all your teeth pulled out without anaesthetic. It was so painful. To... Was it? Yeah, about 500 edits, probably. Yeah, of course. Days. You know, I'm not an actor. You need to be a bit of a kind of... You can't just read it in some kind of monotone. You've got to kind of animate it. Anyway, just a bit of a warning for you there. Um, which, um, if you'd had an alternative career what do you think it might have been um you mean outside music altogether or within music outside music um hard to say i know but hard to say i mean you know does broadcasting count because i've really enjoyed i really enjoyed the radio four things it's about communication so if you've got something that you want to share 
with yeah. the listeners, uh, then it doesn't matter whether you're singing it or whether you're actually interviewing people to draw it out of them. I think I, when I sat in for John, after John Peel died, I sat in on Home Truths for 12 weeks and um, really enjoyed that because it was about the public. He was yeah. just interviewing bog-standard members of the public and drawing out their stories. I loved doing that. It was yeah. such I'm, fun. I'm fascinated with people's stories, any any people's stories, not just yeah. famous people. People uh, are so interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there a song that you wish you'd written? Yes. Yeah, go on. Uh, <clears throat> well, Tinseltown in the Rain, probably. Yeah. Um, probably the greatest song ever written. But that's just for pride. I mean, also Boys and Girls by Blur. I think that says everything that Glad to be Gay said tw 20, 30 years earlier, but in so much more fun and accessible way. <clears throat> I love that idea of boys who are girls who like girls to be boys, who do boys like their girls and do girls like their boys. Yeah, I mean, there you are. Mix it up. It's very kinks, isn't it, I suppose? They always were a thing for me, Blair. Um, do you like visual art? I presume you do, like we all do. Yeah, but Rothko kind of... Right. Meditative stuff that you can just really? kind of uh, get stoned and sit in front of for hours in the tape. <laughs> okay, and the final question, um, and you don't, uh, I mean, I ask everyone, I even asked Jeremy Corbyn this. So, uh, what's your favorite synthesizer? Ah. Uh, Roland SH-101, I would have thought, because it was so cheap and it had all the knobs on top. You know, today's synthesizers where you've got to actually dial through parameters. It's oh, nonsense. no, forget that. I, yeah. you know, I love the SH-101 because it was small and it was simple. You yeah. could understand it. You could get at everything. It worked with MIDI. Didn't sound great, but it got the job done. And exactly. it was affordable. You could afford one. And every teenage kid who wanted to start out and become the next soft cell, become yeah. the next orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, could get started. I saw the I saw Depeche Mode at Hammersmith Palais supporting the psychedelic furs just after their first single had come out. And these little teenage boys in their moddy clothes from Basildon with their homemade synth stands and their mono synths that they bought at the shop, playing them with two fingers. Yeah. And, and, the, and the drum track was just on a cassette with, yes. with Dave Gahan pulled out of his shirt pocket and plugged into a ghetto <laughs> blaster and just play, played the drum track and then they'd play along with it. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, we it blew... It blew the psychedelic furs off the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On that bombshell, we'll give it, uh, we'll have to go. But I've had a, such a ball. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're a natural communicator. You know, people need to keep tuning into your radio programs. Go and see you on tour. I'm, I'm a real fan, Tom. So, and it's great for us to reconnect again after all these years. Thank you, Martin. It's such a pleasure. All right, man. See you soon. Cheers, man. Bye, man. Cheers. Well, Tom, 
what an absolute diamond geezer. He's uh, a lot of fun. He's got a lot of depth and he's a brave guy. You know, he's gone through a lot of things in his life and he's stood up for what is right. Uh, it's something I like to think that I do as well. And I'm very happy to regard him as a good friend. Um, how is everyone? I uh, hope you're all feeling well. Don't forget, uh, you can email me on, on electronicallymartin at gmail.com or, of course, uh, if you want to support me to do, me and my staff, staff, that's good, isn't it, to carry on um, creating this podcast, which uh, literally is a not-for-profit enterprise, uh, but uh, there are costs involved with it. So if you would like to help, it's patreon.com stroke electronically ours and uh, really appreciate your help. Next week, another great guest. Uh, I've got quite a few in the pipeline. I'm sure you'll be impressed. I hope you will. Bye. Terry Lusk. Mm-hmm. Hello, Martin. Enjoying the pod immensely. Many thanks. Just finished the two-party with Bill Nelson, was immersed in the conversation. I'm a big ambient listener. I'd love to hear some contemporary ambient artists interviewed. I think Sylvian would be great. Well, I've asked him and he said no, very, very politely. How about artists like Tim Hecker, Richard Chartier, William Bozinski, Leland Kirby or Robert Turman? That would be cool. Would it? I don't know. I don't know any of them. Do I you? know William Bozinski, I know. He's pretty influential. Tim Hecker, he's a big, big ambient mensch. Yeah. Um, I'll make note of these. Yeah. Um, I've done, or he says also, or some not necessarily ambient living legends like Phil Niblock. I met Phil Niblock, actually. Suzanne Chani or Richard Pinas. Those are all cool ideas. Okay, note them down. Thanks for the podcast and obviously nearly 50 years of music. Oh, my God, I feel so old. <laughs> Cheers from deep in the boreal forest. Where is that? In northern Ontario. Oh, whoa. Canada. Sounds great. Okay. I'd love to be there. Um, thank you, Terry. Uh, this is from Tom Ellis. Hi, Martin. Hope you're well. Big fan of BAF, Heaven 17, um, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a sculpt myself. I run my own creative business, Curious Oddities. Um, da, 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 da. I'm looking at requesting use of part of a track from an album you created with Vince Clark, Spectrum Pursuit Vehicle. Uh, we can look at this offline. He wants to use it. Uh, yeah, he just wants to use it in a film. Martin? Uh, and Martin says it's fine. It's fine by me. You've already replied. I've already replied. Right. Okay. That's why it's not on my list. Okay. Next one. <laughs> oh, you go. Um, this is this is Andrew Jarvis. Loving the podcast. Long time Derek Carter fan. PMP was one of my favourite eighties albums. I if I had to pick three, it would be that Lexicon and Dare. Am I allowed to mention that? Wink. The guests are going from strength to strength. Really interested to acquaint myself with people from my youth and get background that you just could not get way back then. It's true. I grew up in Ibiza in the 70s, 80s, and we didn't even get to see pop videos. So, you know, 
what you knew was mainly from sleeves and magazines. A few suggestions. Air, I'd like that very much. Uh, Ralph Hutter, not going to happen, I don't think. Uh, Jeff Lynn, Liam Howlett, Jez Varley, a guy called Ger Gerald Adonis, DJ Pierre. These are all we good. Yeah. I've made note. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>